0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George. Patrick and I appreciate your tuning in with us once again. I wanted to mention a couple of quick things to you before we get underway here on this news podcast. Uh, First is that this is simply a news podcast, not a news and research podcast. We've decided that we're going to change up the format a little bit over the course of the next few weeks and see how this works. Um, We're going to talk about news during during one podcast and research in a second podcast. Um, We're still going to kind of alternate back and forth week to week, going news and research one week and a topic the following week, Uh, but news and research itself is actually going to be split into two separate podcasts, the first of which will come out on Sunday, and the second of which will come out on Thursday. Uh, So since it's Sunday, uh, this one's going to be coming out today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the results of the Chicago Marathon and the results of the Ironman World Championships in Kona. Uh, And then on Thursday, you'll have another podcast in your feed from us that's going to be simply be the research that we're going to be talking about. Uh, I'm going to share some research about muscle activation and treadmill running, uh, and Patrick is going to share some research about wait for it, sleep. It's good research though, as it always is. Uh, and so be sure to look out for that come Thursday. It'll be a slightly shorter podcast. And like I said, we're going to try this out for the next few weeks and see how it goes. By all means, give us feedback. Let us know whether you like us splitting up the news and research into two different pieces. George at com, Patrick at com, or pleasantpodcast at com. The second thing I wanted to mention before we got underway here is I wanted to make sure that I drew attention to the fact that this is the 50th anniversary. This week is the 50th anniversary of one of the most singular athletic achievements of all time. Now, not just in running, and it's actually not in endurance sports, but it's actually in all sports. Um, And that was the world record that was set in the long jump during the 1968 Mexico City Olympic Games. By Bob Beeman, was from Queens, New York. Um, Bob Beeman went into that competition uh, not as the world record holder, um, as rather the number two guy on the United States uh, long jump team. Uh, but he had been doing a lot of training on his speed with uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the two 200 meter runners who would ultimately finish first and third in Mexico City and then would gain a lot of notoriety for raising their fists in a black power salute during the Medal ceremony, um, and because of that, he had gotten down to where he could run about nine five for a hundred yards. He said uh, he had switched up his shoes a little bit. He had changed up his approach um, and went in in pretty good shape. Here, the world record at the time was twenty seven feet four point seven five inches, which is clearly very far. And they had, and this is one of my favorite parts of the whole story. They had this newfangled measuring device in the 1968 Olympic Games um, that basically was a camera sliding along a metal rail uh, and the metal rail went out to 28 feet because they figured, well, that would give them plenty of space. Somebody could break the world record by almost eight inches and they would still be able to measure it during with their uh, their newfangled measuring device there. Well, Bob Beeman barely qualified for the final because he was so much speedier and fitter than he had been that his, his approach was a little bit off, but he barely qualified for the final and then goes out during the final and on his first jump of the final, which was only the third jump of the entire competition, he goes out and jumps 29 2.5 inches or 8.9 meters. Um, they It took him about 20 minutes to actually measure it since that measuring device only went out to 28 feet and he had jumped more than a foot farther than that. Um again, twenty-seven four point seven five was the world record, and he went out and jumped all the way out of the twenty-sevens, all the way over the twenty-eights, and all the way to twenty-nine to uh and a half inches, uh eight point nine meters. Um, just to kind of put it in perspective, 29, two and a half is the distance from the MPA three point line to the basket, plus another four and a half feet. Um, it's about the length of a school bus. You've probably heard people say, um, he also jumped really high. Uh, Jesse Owens, who's one of the most famous track and field athletes in American history, uh, estimated as he watched it, he was actually doing color commentary for it that, that at his peak, uh, in his arc, uh, that that he was at least six or seven feet off the ground. Um, Mike Powell, who ultimately ended up breaking Bob Beeman's record in 1991, uh, said that that in fact Bob Beeman probably could have gone a little bit farther, um, but because he was hanging in the air for so long that he actually dropped his feet a little bit too early. He just simply wasn't accustomed to being in the air that long. That's how record breaking and 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 paradigm shattering his his jump was. Um, but two ways to put this into perspective. The first one is the one that I just said here. Um, The record wasn't broken until 1991, 23 years later. And it was already at that point, it was the oldest record by about 10 years that was on the books. Um, And so 23 years later, it took it to get broken. And then no one else has broken that record since 1991. And so that 29, two and a half, Remains the second longest long jump of all time. Um, And it's 50 years old. The only person ever to jump any farther than that was Mike Powell, and he did it once in that competition, the World Championships, in 1991. Uh, He broke it by about two inches. Uh, The second way to put this in perspective is to say that this improved the world record at the time by 21 and three quarters inches, which is about 55 centimeters. And that was about 6.59% of what the previous record was. Now, Elliot Kipchoge, as you all know, and we talked about it at great length, and we will continue to talk about it in great length, broke the marathon world record just a few weeks ago, last month, the Berlin Marathon. He ran 201.39 and took 78 seconds off the world record mark at the time. Um, and it was an amazing performance. It was such an amazing performance. We had a special edition of the podcast to talk about it. If he would have lowered the world record of of 20257 by uh 6.59%, he would have taken 8 minutes and 6 seconds off the world record. He would have run 15451. That's how much time or how much distance or what a percentage, what a chunk that he took off the world record, Bob Beeman did back in 1968. Um, quick spoiler alert here, Patrick Lang and Daniela Reef both did course records at Kona this past uh, this past week um, at the Ironman World Championships. Um, in order to take 6.59% off the previous record, Patrick Lang would have had to take 31 minutes and 41 seconds off the course record of 801 he merely took off nine minutes. He crushed the course record. Nine minutes, became the first person to go under under eight hours, ran 7.52 um, in Kona, and yet that was not nearly the 31 minutes and 41 seconds he would have to take off in order to match the percentage that that uh, Bob Beeman took off the world record in 1968 in the long jump. Danrella Reef did a performance for the ages in Conan. We're going to brag about her here in just a few minutes. She took 22 minutes off the course record. However, in order to take 6.59% off the course record, she would have had to take 34 minutes and 45 seconds off the course record. Um, 22 minutes is amazing. It's incredible. It's paradigm shifting. It it breaks every mold in all of Ironman triathlon uh, with the Ironman World Championships. But yet, it's really not even close to 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 what, uh, what what a a record breaking and record shattering attempt it was or or a feat it was by Bob Beeman way back in 1968. So, like I said, went on about it here for just a minute, but it is the greatest uh, athletic achievement of all time. And so, so certainly it deserves our attention here at the end of October in 2018. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: And I'm Patrick Onger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Well, uh, this week is News and Research Week, and uh, it's definitely a week we didn't want to miss, which is the reason why we're making sure that uh, that, that we record together, uh, even though we're not actually in the same space here, uh, because we wanted to talk about Chicago, we wanted to talk about Kona, and then, uh, of course, there's always really, really good research to discuss. So, uh, let's take it away. The Chicago Marathon, great race. Patrick, you watched it.
1: I did, and uh, what an amazing race we had in Chicago. Uh, For sure. Particularly on the men's side.
0: Yeah, the the, the women's race was... It was great for the winner, and then then after that, it kind of dropped off a little bit, which I thought was sort of interesting, too. But, um, yeah, I was able to watch the Chicago Marathon better than I normally do because, for one thing, that morning, I had more time. I wasn't out running doing a long run that morning, and so I was actually just sitting in front of the computer. And second, on Let'sRun.com, they actually shared a feed that was showing it live from the local Chicago television station. Uh, And so I was actually able to sit there and watch the race, from about the ten mile mark forward to the finish, which it's rare that I get to do that and that was fun.
1: Yeah, that's almost exactly what I did. I didn't really have much of a plan and then I found that feed on let's run dot com and voila, we were off to the races. No pun intended.
0: <laughs> right on. <laughs> so so let's 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 talk about those races then. The uh the men's race was won by Sir Mo Farah uh, in two oh five eleven. Uh his First big marathon win here, and and I think, and Patrick, I want to hear what you have to say. A, a pretty big marathon breakthrough for him too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, for folks who maybe you know don't follow as closely, Mo Farah, he really was a bit more of a track and five k guy um, for for many years. And this, I would say, after him winning the Chicago Marathon in two hundred five, and not just winning in a two hundred five, but also negative splitting
0: yeah. um,
1: by a, almost a minute. Yeah. Um, to me, that within the men's race, not only was it interesting to see him kind of show his superstar power in the marathon for the first time, whereas we've seen it on the track and in the 5K. This, you know, I felt this was a a good enough time where we can now consider him a serious contender for the 2020 Olympics.
0: Yeah, I agree with you on that. Now, yeah, to Mo Farah to talk about, and again, it's Sir Mo Farah. Uh, he has been knighted by the uh, by the, the Queen of England. He. Uh, on his bib, you know, everybody has their names. The elites all have their names on their bibs rather than having numbers on their bibs. And he, his actually said Sir Mo, which I thought was super cool. <laughs> um, wow, five letters. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, he's he's not just sort of like any old track runner. I mean, he's a multi-time world champion and Olympic champion. Um, he won the five thousand meters and the ten thousand meters in both the London Olympic Games in two thousand twelve and the Rio Olympic Games in two thousand sixteen. Um, and that's hard to do, and then in between, he mixed that up with a whole bunch of world championships as well, and so uh, he's been dominant on the track, but this is, and he's done two or three marathons. This was the first one where he really, like, he he got it figured out. I mean, he's run some fast ones. He ran London this past year, and he ran London a couple years ago, but this is the first one where, where it really appeared as if uh, he, he nailed his plan, I guess you'd say, you know, like you said, they went out in sixty three minutes um, and uh, and then he came back in in uh, just about a minute faster than that in in one oh two about one oh two eleven something like that so so yeah um, i I was super impressed
1: yeah, and so there's a lot but there's a, the first thing is since we both watched on let's run dot com you know you probably saw on the message boards and kind of a, a lot of the comments. He was kind of dropping off at first. Jeffrey Currie was the real aggressor in this yeah. race, the one that kind of took it out, took it out at an honest pace. Currie uh, took out the race in, you know, 103. And, you know, there was that lead pack, but he was the one kind of driving the charge, right? He was the one that kind of kept the surges going.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and Mo Farah was kind of, looked like he was hanging on.
0: And um, he, he was in, in cycling. We call that tailgunning. He was he was kind of like hanging out at the back of the pack, basically. Um, and, and you kind of wondered, is he hurting? What's going on with him? I mean, he just wasn't he wasn't really running in the thick of things. You know, contrast that with Galen Rupp, who was, you know, up near the front, not on the front, but at the front. Right. Um, not taking the lead, but but was very much seemed to be mixing up at the very, very front. Um, it was almost like Mo Farah, like wasn't paying attention and just was sort of, you know, tailgunning back there, at the back of the front group.
1: Yeah, almost like our our guy, uh, uh, Kauuchi, in in the Boston Marathon. It was almost like, you know, he was just kind of like, oh, if they're there, that's great. If not, I'll let them go. And then he really kind of dropped the hammer there a bit later in the race, Um, you know, running a negative split. And it's interesting, too, because, I mean, he ran the negative split, but really the top five runners ran a negative split, you know, from Galen Rupp all the way through Mo Farah.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Galen Rupp was sixth. Uh, he ended up running 206-21, and so he was right about an even split. Um, and then the yeah. top five guys all ran negative splits, which, you know, it's been pointed out, not just by us, but in a lot of different places, that most really impressive marathon performances, including the, the current world record, which was set only a few weeks ago, are usually done via negative split. Um, uh, virtually never. Do you have a positive split ending up uh, with a, with a really impressive performance? Um, it's, yeah. it's almost always people go out not conservatively, but 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 on pace, and then they end up finishing really really strongly. And that's uh, it's clearly a, a winning strategy, and it's one that, that definitely those of us who are who are not elites can can learn from the elites.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's funny you mention that too. I, w- I was thinking the same thing as you were talking that you know with the elites, it's 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 always about a very slight negative split um I, you know I, I use slight it's kind of an operative word there but you know and, and it's really true for even for the amateur runners where you know generally if you pr with a positive split split that generally just means there was a very soft pr heading into that race
0: yeah. you know but the truly
1: impressive ones tend to be the, the, the negative splits yeah. so what were some of your your key takeaways from this race
0: um, well, I'll, I'll also add, you know, we were talking about Sir Mo's, uh, uh, tail He kind of did that on the track too. Do you know what I mean? Um, he would always yeah. sort of hang out at the back of the pack and then he would kind of gradually move up around like the third quarter of the race, you know, 60, 70% through the race, he would kind of move up towards the front. And then in the last two laps, he would just, you know, blow everybody away. I mean, his finishing speed was, was lethal on the track. Um, you know he doesn 't he 's never set a world record in the uh, in the the on the track, and so his absolute best times are not the fastest, but he was always able to win races because he had such a such a incredibly strong finish and this kind of mirrored that 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 he started off evenly um and and he moved up around like fifteen sixteen miles into where he was animating the race a little bit more and then over the course of the last four miles, he started really really dropping the pace um and uh, and started thinning out the pack a lot. And just one by one, people began dropping off and dropping off and dropping off until finally with about 800 meters to go is when he dropped the last guy who uh, um, was actually the fastest person in the field, uh, judging by PRs. Um, uh, and he dropped him with with about 800 meters to go and then kind of ran away from him and, and, and finished solo. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting, too, just to kind of see. This was like the marathon version of a Mo Farah race, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Very much so. Yeah. Now, we'll come back to this in just a minute because um, I do want to talk about it. But I but I did point out to people on our um, on our our uh, Facebook page because a couple of folks were talking about it that uh, when around eighteen or nineteen miles they dropped in a really fast mile a sub four thirty mile um, and and that really thinned out the front pack down to about seven or eight people. And then, like I said, Mofair continued to kind of pick up the pace and just kind of shed people one by one. Um, The top five runners in this race were all wearing Nike Vaporfly shoes. Um, And and it was almost kind of like watching all the guys wearing Vaporflies shedding all of the the non-Vaporfly wearers throughout the course of the last 10K until they got to about the 23-mile mark which is where the last person not wearing vaporflies fell off the lead pack. It was a guy wearing Adidas. He ultimately ended up finishing sixth. Um, that was striking to me. Um, what did you think?
1: Yeah, uh, to your point, it, it it did almost look like a, a Nike ad or, or yeah. a breaking two, <laughs> right? another breaking two run there at the end. Yeah. A, with, with the flat, fast course, and then the fact that it was so stark of a, um, it, it was so obvious that it was all the Vaporfly folks there at the front. Right,
0: right. Now, to be fair, and then the women's race, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute, the women's race was won by Bridget Koski, who also was wearing Vaporflies. Um, but to be fair, this is a race that's sponsored by Nike, and Nike brought their fastest runners there and give bigger appearance fees to their runners to run in this race. And so it kind of makes sense that, okay, it was sort of like the cream of the Nike crop was there, as opposed to the cream of Adidas crop is maybe some other race, right? Um, and so, right. so so, it's not, there is a little bit of an intervening variable there, but just strictly from an optics point of view, it was very striking to see all the vaporfly runners running away from the non-vaporfly runners, if you want to classify them that way. Um, I was struck by that. Um, one yeah, of those, and we touched, oh,
1: we touched a little bit on that, and in, we're in in talking about Berlin, how it, it seemed like, Nike made a very strategic decision to say, we want Ketoggi to be the star of Berlin, and then we'll put our two through ten people in Chicago, which was a yeah. Nike-sponsored race. And Berlin yeah. is not Nike-sponsored. No. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting to see you know, kind of shoe politics to go into, into the race and who runs which race. But yeah. that was yeah. still striking to see because usually you don't see that much of a blanket um, you know, shoe th- that far in front of everybody else.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, now another performance, a couple other points we should mention there. Um, third place in the race, um, was a new Japanese record. Um, the, uh, there, there's been a real focus in Japan over the course of the last couple of years on trying to improve the the Japanese record and trying to create more world-class Japanese marathoners. Um, and Mm -hmm. twice this year, um, the Japanese record has been broken, not least in part because a uh, private consortium of businesses offered a 1 million yen incentive to any Japanese mm-hmm. runner who broke the Japanese record. Um, and so third place in the race was a Japanese guy named Seguro Osako, uh, and he ran 205.50, which is a fantastic, a brilliant time there um, uh, to set the Japanese record and to collect his 1 million yen. <laughs> um, so yeah. so yeah, big, big, big props to him as well. He, interestingly enough, he's, he's also in the Nike Oregon project. So the, the same, uh, coaching group that Galen Rupp is a part of, um, uh, and that Mo Farah used to be a part of, um, and, uh, but he's not coached by the same person. Um, Alberto Salazar is Galen Rupp's coach and, uh, and Suguro Osako is coached by the other, uh, coach there. Um, Pete Julian, I think it is. I, I can't quite remember. I'll, I'll, I'll remember here in just a second, right when you start talking. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, first, first thing, I thought that was pretty cool that he actually won the 1 million yen,
0: which oh, I think was sure. equivalent
1: to, to like $850,000, I think, just to give folks yeah. kind of the reference points. It's pretty yeah. similar to yeah. like winning a million dollars. And I, kind of my, one of my big takeaways from Chicago overall is that the Japanese runners in general. They're here to stay, and they could be some real threats for for, for podium spots in the twenty twenty Olympics. Um, you know, we've talked about our guy, you know, Yuki Kawauchi. You oh, yeah. know, plenty on this podcast, but they have a the Japanese men in general. They're almost in the same place where the American women are, where they're both deep and talented, with a lot of great up and coming runners, and they're really kind of knocking on the door of being the best in the world. Um, you know, or at sure. least kind of that second or third spot behind like Ethiopia or Kenya.
0: Yeah, for sure. The um it was Pete Julian who coaches uh who coaches uh, Suguru Osako by the way. Uh, and we should also mention um um Yuki Kawauchi. Uh he was in the race as well. Um and and Yuki Kawauchi uh was able to win Boston in part because of the way it unfolded was so bizarre and he's such a malleable performer. Um this one followed the script a little bit more in terms of, okay, they went out right on pace and then they ran a little bit faster. And, and so just from a raw speed point of view, he simply wasn't able to keep up. So he ended up finishing a little bit farther back in uh, right around the same time that he ran uh, when he won Boston, as a matter of fact. Um, but, uh, yeah. th- there was a, there was an article about him, by the way, in the New York times the week before the Chicago marathon, uh, that was interesting. That talked a little bit more about him. Um, we had talked about how he came back from Boston and announced that he was going pro, but you might remember several months ago, he said, okay, I'm going to go pro when I'm done with this project that I'm working on for the school where I currently work. And evidently, he's not done with the project yet. And so he's still working full-time right now, um, even though he won the Boston Marathon six months ago. So pretty incredible there. And it's
1: like his 10th marathon of the year or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. We'll
0: cut him some slack. Yeah, plus a couple of ultra-marathons as well. So yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that minor thing, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of well, – I'll, I'll, well, we'll talk about the, the, the other kind of bonus performances here in just a minute. Let's talk about the women's race. Um, the women's race was won by Bridget Kosky – um, Bridget Koski uh, ran solo, mostly, uh, a super impressive race from her. She just ran away from the field in the back half of the race. She ran 218.35, which is the seventh fastest marathon ever run by a woman. Um, what did you think about that? Oh gosh,
1: she, she didn't just win. She blew the doors off her competition. Um, I mean, she, she, won. she ran a 218.35 and that included a 90 second negative split, which is very impressive considering how just how fast the riding. I mean, a 90 second negative split is a, impressive for a three hour marathon or much less yeah. a 218 220 marathon. She did the first half in in 110 and the second half in like 108.35. Yeah. Um, while most everybody else in that field ran about a three minute positive split. Yeah. Which was, yeah. you know, it, interesting. Um, and kind of the big takeaway for her is moving forward is I think we can, kind of like I mentioned with MoFair, I think we can now kind of. Pencil her in in the list of potential gold medalists in the 2020 Olympic Games. Um, mm-hmm. With that kind of negative split, it kind of tells us that that was a very complete result. That 218.35 was not you know, an, an empty result. I don't, need, I don't know how to say it quite right. But, you know, She's she ran that race on a day. That, yeah, yeah. Or at the very least, it didn't feel like that was the best she could have hoped for.
0: Right.
1: Uh, you know, she ran the race on a day that wasn't perfect, and she ran a lot of the race by herself. Um, so that to me was, was the big takeaway that this could be a, a, somebody else that we have to add on our list of elites to consider when thinking about who could be on the podium in 2020.
0: Yeah, she did have, um, she did have a benefit of you know, being able to run with some elite men, um, not pro men, but, or, or maybe some, some, you know, second tier pro men. Um, and cause, you know, sub 220 is a big goal of a lot of men and a lot of folks go to, to uh chicago to do that because 220 is about what you have to run in order to qualify for the the men's olympic marathon trials um and so um so yeah she she was accompanied by a lot of uh really fast men throughout and i think that probably helped but but nonetheless yeah i mean none of her competitors were around her for the whole back half of the race um and it was it was interesting um and a little bit frustrating that that they actually did not show a whole lot of her race on the coverage that I was watching. They kept flashing back to the men because she had it sewn up so early that, you know, yeah. bar some catastrophic failure, she was just going to kind of run away from it. And then she crossed the finish line. It's like, oh, wait, she just ran 218.35. Maybe we should have been showing her the whole time because she <laughs> she, she ran a really incredible race, you know? But, but the, the cameras and the producers uh, of this race, I think were a little bit more trained on yeah, you know, the drama of the race and the women's race just was not dramatic because she was was such a such a a, a dream crusher. Yeah, uh,
1: or at least I hope that was the reason. Um, yeah, yeah, true, that, true. And that, that they were yeah. just you know more bent towards the men, which is unfortunate. In a lot of sporting events. Agreed. But yeah, I mean she she ran phenomenal. Um, and then and then as for the Americans, I mean Sarah Crouch, I think she was a top American finishing sixth. Was um, nice.
0: your your pick? That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, I, I so, forgot so about I, that. Thank
0: you for the reminder. <laughs> yeah, man. So well, so here's what's funny is that, that I had mentioned Laura Thweet, and, and she kind of underperformed, but then Sarah Crouch, and I don't know if you knew this when you actually picked her, about three weeks before the race, she actually had a benign tumor removed from her quad. Um, so they took a gigantic... Chunk out of her quad three weeks before the race, and so most people who, who were following a little bit more closely perhaps than you and I were uh, were like, No, nah, no, nah, she's not gonna do well. But she ends up finishing sixth and running uh, running 232. So, so yeah, you're that, man. That's
1: incredible. I did yeah. not know that at all. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, so super impressive. Um, Gwen Jorgensen, who, uh, who I'll give some credit to after the race was was very humble <laughs> yeah um and which 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 stood at least for me in very stark contrast to to some of the ways that she's been up to this point uh she finished 11th she ran 236 um and she positive split it she she fell apart in the back half of the race um yeah. Uh, and just, just did not did not look great. Um she went through the first half, I wanna say at about um at about two uh two thirteen, two or one thirteen, one fourteen, uh, and ended up. No, coming she back. went through
1: in 115. Okay, 115,
0: one fifteen. Okay, one fifteen and then up coming coming back in yeah. one twenty one. Yeah, so about a six minute positive split there and, and was definitely headed in the wrong direction too. Um so yeah. she said she said after she crossed the finish line that she looked at her husband and said, I don't know if I made the right choice here. Like deciding to to give up triathlon, where I was one of the best, if not the best, in the world, and instead deciding to focus on the marathon. I don't know if I made the right choice here. Um, and uh, she talked about that afterwards and said, "Okay, clearly I still have some more work to do. I still have some more things to figure out." Um, and so, kudos to her uh, for for being humbled and and acting humble there uh, post race. Um, I think I think a lot of folks were impressed by that, uh, except for the really really snarky folks on Let's Run dot com who, uh, who 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 just kind of wanted to say, I told you so. But, you know. That, that
1: was a redundant sentence. You could have just said, folks on let'srun.com. us <laughs> run right,
0: right. <laughs> Well, you know, so on, on, that, on that note, and I was thinking about this when I was running the other day, I think that that there's sort of two threads inside um, inside the running community that I think folks who are outside the running community, particularly people in the multi-sport community, might not be entirely aware of, vis-a-vis Gwen Jorgensen the first one is the one that, that I've reflected a few times and it's this idea that, that, that she thinks that she can simply come in from outside triathlon and then beat all of these people who are pure runners and, and that to me felt very arrogant and very disrespectful of her future competitors so, so there, there's, there's that thread the other thread that I think multi-sport people might want to be a little bit more aware of um, is, is the attitude inside the running community which I don't hold Let me be clear, this is not what I think, but it's inside the running community. There's a lot of people that think that, oh, well, triathletes can't run, and triathletes aren't good runners. And so, here's supposed to be the best triathlete runner in the world coming in, talking about how she's going to beat everybody, and she ends up losing by 18 minutes to the winner of the Chicago Marathon. Um, That's the best you got, triathlon? That's your best runner? See, we told you, triathletes can't run. And so I I do think it's important for people outside of the, the the running community, people in the triathlete community, to recognize that thread is going on inside of the of the running community. And yet yeah, it's snarky, and yet yeah, it's, it's it's not great. But it's it's just an important thing to kind of keep in mind, I suppose. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, like I, I said, and like I said, not something I believe, but but that thread is there. And and frankly, Gwyn Jorgensen has not done a whole lot just yet in order to to really defy that <laughs> you know
1: yeah and, and i'll say my hot take on gwen jorgensen if you could even call it that is i, I think right now i mean she's getting crushed in her training i mean she's tripped her, her weekly mileage increase the intensity of her quality runs increase the distance of her long runs and probably her easy runs too yeah. you know her training partners are the best runners in the world and honestly her coach probably couldn't give two rips about her triathlon accomplishments And she's really just an insurance policy in case something goes wrong with the real bell cow, so to speak. So right now, her training is really just a Hail Mary pass in in, in many ways. You know, usually when you're coaching someone, you say, where are you now? And we'll build you gradually. But with her, you know, I think it's a bit more of a, we're going to throw you right into the deep end and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, no worries. But, you know, I think they're dropping a lot on her training-wise at once and, You know, not progressing. You know, she may not be progressing quickly, or we may not see a lot of results now because she's kind of drowning from a training perspective.
0: Yeah. You know, but
1: I, I still wouldn't sleep on her, and I don't. I don't think you are either. But in in general, I'm seeing kind of the oh we told you so mentality among some runners. But I would not. I would not be so quick to judge. This is a bit of a project, and even if she hasn't got it together until the 2020 trials. I still wouldn't be surprised if she busted it out
0: them. Yeah, and we'll see. I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with her over the course of the next year and a half. So as as one person I was reading uh, uh, pointed out, she now has like 500 days until the Olympic trials, and she got a qualifier here. I mean, she you know 236 is far below what she wanted to do. Was, you know, her coach told her prior to the start of the race not to run any faster than about 540 pace, which is right about 228. Um, And so clearly her goal was 228, and so she ran eight minutes slower than her goal. But she doesn't have to do another marathon until the Olympic trials. Um, I mean, if she really wants to do another one and really wants to get under 230 so that she can go to the Olympic trials with a better PR, or if she wants to do one to to maybe learn a little bit more about how the marathon is raced, she can do that. Um, But I agree with you. It, It could well be that she's just kind of fried right now. She's just sort of overtrained, and that maybe she'll be better off backing off and, and doing shorter races and focusing on her training and, and taking a real long view as opposed to having to feel like she has to jump in races and perform right now, you know? Um, we'll see.
1: And, and, and you bring up a great point. I didn't even think about, you know, if, and, and let me just kind of ask you, if, if you were her coach, would you want her to run another marathon? Because, and I ask that because I would say in general, I think it takes about six or seven marathons to physically build up the aerobic endurance now she obviously had a huge aerobic base being a triathlete but even still i think it is different you know running a marathon obviously than, than doing a triathlon yeah. but also i think you need some of that experience just to know how to mentally race the marathon
0: right right yeah i don't know i mean it's, it's hard to say um i would be interested in what you would do because because yeah i mean th- those are those are two really different approaches you know, does she need to, to run a spring marathon and maybe even another late summer fall marathon in order to, to get a better sense of how it works? Um, and, and, of course, to get the physiological bump from the actual marathon itself um, and, th- and then to train her mind and, and just to learn some stuff. Um, or are they better off not... You know, are, are, will they back off based on the fact she's fried? Let her rest a little bit, and then and then maybe be a little bit less aggressive over the course of the next five hundred days. I, I guess you know, as I'm thinking about it and as we're talking about it out loud here, I guess it would depend on what the assessment was as to what happened in Chicago. Um, I mean, yeah. if 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 I was her coach, if I was Jerry Schumacher, who's her coach, who's a great coach, um, if, if I was her coach, it would depend on okay, why did that happen? was it because she made a lot of fixable errors or is it because something's off in her training that we, we need to fix and then we need to slow down and actually uh, do some surgery on, on her, on our approach here. Um, yeah, for her, it, it also makes me wonder too, for her, I, I, I don't, she's not talking about changing coaches, but it does kind of make me wonder if, if that's crossed her mind, you know, that, that, that maybe, yeah. maybe this is not quite the right situation for her. Um, but I don't know. And what do you think?
1: I am a big proponent of getting an easy win, and then you know, like in the spring,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then giving yourself a full year to train for the trials. And the reason I say and by easy win, I mean it could be something like, hey, we're going to do a 236 again, but this time we're going to run the second half in 115 instead of yeah. the first half. Yeah. Like set a goal where are like, look, we are intentionally frying you physically. Like we are, we are you know, throwing you in the deep end here. However, we need, you to, we need to train you mentally how to run fast the second half of the marathon. So you're going to go out in, you know, 120, 121, and then close fast. Mm-hmm. I would do something like that and then focus kind of on that mental approach. Because I do think there is something to be said. I mean, just from my own personal experience, you know, I, I had run many, many races, 5K races on the track and 10K races and cross-country races. But it really took several marathons to learn. This is what it feels like to race for two and a half hours. Yeah. This is what it feels like to race for twenty six miles, and it, it is a different feeling. And it's, a, it's a different kind of mindset that you have to readjust to.
0: Yeah, and she's a different sort of athlete because of what she's been doing over the course of the past six years. You know, like you said, yeah. I mean, she certainly is aerobically fit from all the cycling and swimming and triathloning that she's been doing. Um, but like, what she and but who she is and what her background is and what she's capable of doing. Is different when she showed up in Oregon for the Bowerman Project camp than it was when Shalane yeah. Flanagan did at age twenty-two, or however old Shalane Flanagan was, or Amy Craig did when she showed up. You know, it like like what she, her background is different, um, and mm-hmm. and so so yeah, I I just I just think it's sort of interesting, and I'm I'm sure by the way we're sitting here talking about it out loud. I am sure that she's been having the same conversations with her husband slash manager um and and her her confidants as well um, I'm sure she's trying to get it figured out and trying to figure out next steps too because I, I i do feel certain that she's pro- she's not content with the two thirty six um yeah
1: yeah no doubt
0: about it uh, a couple other kind of quick things we'll mention here one um uh a lot of attention was focused, and I actually shared something. I think I shared it on the, on the on a page, on, on our, our Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast page, um, about uh, Joan Samuelson, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who was the uh, winner of the first-ever uh, Women's Olympic Marathon, which was in 1984, um, and a former winner and former American record holder, which she set in Chicago, um, of the Chicago Marathon. Um, she is now over... Um, She's now over 60 years old, and she was actually trying to become the first woman over the age of 60 to break three hours. Um, And she fell short. She ended up finishing with her daughter, and they both ran 312. But, you know, still for a 61 year old woman to run 312 in the marathon is pretty amazing. Um, And then along the same lines, uh, there was a woman from. Uh, Ohio, from from Cleveland, Ohio, or Mentor, Ohio, which is east of Cleveland. Uh, her name is Jeannie Rice. She's 70 years old, uh, and Jeannie Rice ran 3:27.50. I'll let that sit for a second. Wow, 3:27.50 <laughs> for a 70-year-old woman, uh, breaking the uh, 70-plus women's world record by about eight minutes. Um, that was set back in 2013. So, yeah, kudos to, to Jeannie Rice of the United States of Mentor, Ohio, for uh, for running a 3:27 as a 70 year old. I hope I can run 3:27 when I'm a 70 year old. Um,
1: yeah, no kidding. It almost <laughs> took me a
0: second to realize what you were saying. Yeah three, three twenty seven Yeah, three twenty seven. So so yeah, to put it in perspective, that's faster than eight minute pace. She ran faster than eight minute pace for a marathon. She qual that that's that's a good enough time. To qualify for the Boston Marathon in the eighteen to thirty-five women's age group, um, and she did it yeah. at seventy. That's, that,
1: well, you know what they say: seventy is the new thirty.
0: Yeah, yeah. In Mentor, <laughs> Ohio, evidently, it's seventy is the new thirty. I mean, yeah, I mean seventy geez, is the new sixty, Louise. but in Mentor, yeah, it's seventy is the new thirty. Uh, very good. Now, on a on a side note to running that some people might have seen, and this is a developing story just this week, and so we'll look forward to seeing what happens. And, Patrick, I don't know if you've seen this because I didn't mention it to you, but did you see that Meb Kofleski is kind of floating the idea of coming out of retirement?
1: Yes. Okay. And I have a theory on this, too. Um, so, so
0: let's tell the story real quick, and there's not much of a story besides what I just said. So, so this week, Meb Kofleski basically uh, started floating the idea that maybe he has one more Olympics in him. He's done four Olympic games, uh, and he's basically looking at the state of American men's marathoning right now and says, you know what? I think Galen Ruppel beat me but i think i could still finish in the top 3 at the marathon olympic trials in a couple of years and so he's he's tossing around the idea of whether in fact he he wants to go to try and become a five-time marathoner um yeah but go ahead what were you going to say about it
1: uh, that's really it uh that i think he's looked at like the chicago marathon results for the american men he saw that there was a massive gap between Galen Rupp and the next best American male runner. And he probably said, you know what? Heck, I can do a two twelve
0: <laughs> Yeah. He said, I can that, <laughs> give that a option. shot. At- yeah. 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 You know, uh,
1: so, I mean, it's almost like, like Brett Favre. He's like, you know what? I may not be able to it deep anymore, but I can do some screen passes and
0: see what happens.
1: <laughs> I'll take your word for it.
0: Right on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, I I I'll actually get to see him next month in Philadelphia. I look forward to that. But uh and and maybe I'll get the opportunity to ask him or maybe the story will have uh, will have developed a little bit more from there. But it's kind of a side note story at this point because it hasn't really developed that that he sort of halfway through it out at a, at a press conference and so uh don't know whether whether he's actually seriously considering or not because certainly I mean for anybody to qualify for an Olympic team or qualify for Olympic trials, it takes a massive amount of commitment. Um, and he's been committed yeah. for a long time and by then he's going to be what, 45 years old. And so we're talking about a, a, a real level of commitment here that he would have to, to make that he, and his family would have to make. So we'll see. We'll see. Um,
1: yeah. And this is a bit of a side tangent or side question, but do you have <laughs> any theory for why the American women are, are so strong in the marathon right now? But it seems like the men it's Galen Rupp or bust.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that that I, I do think that there is there is energy on the side of the women, if that makes sense right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that there there there's a lot of synergy, um, and I think that that you know Shalane Flanagan running so well and Des Linden running so well, and then and then it just kind of builds right, um, and so so I, I do think there's a lot of energy and and, and synergism on the side of the women's right now. You know the the I think frankly if Galen Rupp was a little more popular. There might be a similar synergy on the men's side, um, but there's just not right now. Um, I read an article this week that referred to to Galen Rupp as the boy next door that nobody likes. Um, and I, I think saw that, yeah, I, I, I actually think that's really unfair. I've always kind of liked Galen Rupp, okay, um, but you know he doesn't do a whole lot of press stuff. He's kind of a shy person. He's sort of a homebody. He'd rather kind of hang out with his family. Um, and and then all of the stuff around the Nike Oregon Project and a lot of the the the. Uh, negative publicity around uh, drug performance-enhancing drug charges and that sort of thing, I think that, that that just sort of fuels it. And so maybe, I mean, dare I say it's the personalities of the people at the front? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah that, and, and you, you may be on with something, because it does seem like the best women are kind of in the same training group and, and training for the same goal in the marathon, but the men definitely seem to be a bit more scattershot or a bit more off on their own, each of them. Yeah, yeah. But... I don't really know the source, but that so your your explanation is as good as any I could think
0: of. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, and and by all means, folks, reach out to us: George at itlcoaching.com, dot com, Patrick at itlcoaching.com, dot com, on the Facebook Pleasant at gmail dot com. Let us know what you think about that uh, and and some of the factors behind it. Um, but let's switch gears here and let's talk about the other big race uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. And that, of course, was the Ironman World Championship in Kona. Uh, sponsored by Amazon.com, uh, as we talked about at length mm-hmm. on, our, on our preview episode uh, a couple weeks ago. But, um, by the way, we should mention, as far as that goes, um, a few people uh, weighed in on our Facebook page and, and, and offered various ideas of what they thought Amazon was trying, trying to get at, too. And um, the, one of the ones that, that uh, added to some of the things we talked about... Uh, said that mentioned how the median income of of a triathlete is is much higher than the median income of the average American or the median income of Americans, um, and then the median income of an Ironman triathlete is significantly higher than the median income of just a triathlete of of a triathlete who does not do Ironmans, um, and uh, and that. That by Amazon sort of inserting themselves, they said, "Well, this is a play for Whole Foods because Whole Foods also tends to have a clientele that has a much higher than average median income." Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's—I think there's there's something to that. There's potentially something to that that that, for lack of a better way of saying it, Amazon is promoting Whole Foods because these are Whole Foods people. <laughs> you know yeah um and and there's something to that i've done iron man's my wife's done iron man's and we like whole foods so you know it, it certainly could be something to that but uh, but anyway um we didn't even talk about the weather in in chicago it was actually raining and there were some slight winds in chicago the temperature was about right but but the rain was kind of gross um it seemed to maybe slowed things down just a little bit but not a whole lot um in kona The weather was the 40th anniversary uh, Kona here or the 40th Kona Ironman World Championship was the best weather they've had in 40 years there. Um, Now, it was hot um, because it's always hot. It's Hawaii. But it was about five degrees cooler than it normally is. But more importantly, the wind usually is strong or brutal. Um, And this year, it was virtually non-existent. Uh, The wind just wasn't there. Um, There was a slight breeze um, and then one person who was actually on the scene told us that, that, that slight breeze was even at the backs of the people as they were coming back into town, the backs of the pros pushing them as they were coming back into town. Um, but, but the wind was almost completely still, um, out there in Kona. And so a slightly cooler day and a windless day, it, 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 it made for a profoundly different race and kudos to the people who took advantage because they did, um, Patrick Lang, who we picked to be one of our um, the winners um, he we, we, we picked him we said he was going to be hard to beat he was hard to beat uh, he was impossible to beat in fact he was not beaten uh, he ended up repeating as the Ironman world champion he smashed his own course record in the process uh, and became the first person to break eight hours in Kona he did seven fifty two thirty nine so again first person to break eight hours and he did seven fifty two um, you know his his course record, which he set last year was eight oh one and he took nine minutes off of his course record uh, from just last year uh thanks in large part to the good conditions um the the women's run uh, winner was Daniela reef um, she uh sort of some interesting things about her race that we'll talk about here in just a minute um, but but she also ended up uh breaking the the course record by about twenty minutes. Um, by doing a pretty incredible 8:26:18, 8:26, uh, to take her fourth win in Kona. So this is the first, the third win or third, second win for Patrick Lang and the uh, the third win for uh, for for Danielle Arif. Um, so yeah, pretty incredible. Uh, in the men's race, Bart Arno, who's from Belgium, he ended up finishing second again. Nobody had broken eight hours in Kona until this year, uh, when Patrick Lang broke it, and then Bart Arno also broke it. <laughs> so, four minutes le- four minutes after the first guy breaks eight hours for the first time, the second guy comes through and breaks eight hours for the first time. And, and again, it's not like this is a new race. It's been going on for 40 years. Um, uh, he did 7.56.41. Third place was David McNamee from Great Britain, who also was third place last year. Uh, he ends up going 8.0.109, so he also breaks the old course record. Uh, Patrick Lane's course record just set last year was 8.0.140, and all three of the podium three guys on the podium all broke the old course record so david mcnamee went faster than anybody else has gone in 40 years at kona and finishes third um again they 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 definitely took advantage of those conditions um uh patrick lang we should also mention uh bent down and proposed to his girlfriend right there at the finish line she said (laughs) and she said yes um, which was uh, that's which was beautiful. Yeah, which is fun to watch. I can really put a front of your day if she says no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, what's it, it was a little bit incongruous because they're interviewing him, and and so so he crosses the finish line, and everybody's blown away by by how fast it was and everything, right? And so they 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 put the the traditional um, lay on him and all that sort of thing. They crown him as the winner. Um, and he he hugs his girlfriend and and then they kind of bring him back over in front of the finish line to start interviewing him and he said well I promise I'll get the course record he goes Julia Julia and he starts trying to call out his girlfriend's name and she's not really listening he's like you're going to want to listen to this Julia okay I'm going to just have to go over there and so he kind of walks over to her and so it was this sort of like weird kind of awkward moment there for an instant on the live stream because he's like he's like almost getting on to her because she's not listening when he wanted to propose (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty funny. Sounds like but... a triathlete's version of Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, he proposed, fortunately, yeah, yeah, we 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 were able to avoid additional awkwardness cuz she did say yes there. Um and so yeah, kudos to him. Uh the top American was Tim O'Donnell, um who won the Augusta 70.3 here, um uh just a couple of uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh here in Georgia. Uh, he did 80317, so again, a brilliantly fast time. Um uh, Brandon Curie was 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 fifth, and then Matt Russell, uh, who we talked about on the preview episode, uh, did eight oh four forty five, which in probably thirty seven of the forty years they've had Kona, eight oh four forty five would have won the race. He finishes sixth with an eight oh four forty five. He actually won Ironman Chattanooga only two weeks prior to the Ironman World Championships. Uh, and then came back two weeks later and ends up finishing sixth in, in, in Kona. But he's also the person that during the Kona bike last year uh was hit by a car during the actual race and was severely injured um but was able to make a comeback um and and uh was added to the WTC added him to the race and he ends up finishing sixth. So kudos to him and I'm glad to see him have such a such a triumphant comeback there. Uh, thoughts on the men's race there uh, there Patrick?
1: Uh, To me, my biggest takeaway, uh, you obviously are more invested in the triathlete community than me. I follow it, but just don't have quite the same insight. To me, the biggest takeaway was that um, just how much weather really affects uh, a race. I mean, and that sounds very generic, but it is still shocking to see somebody take eight minutes off of a record that uh, on a course that's been around for 40-plus years, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where... When you kinda of do the math in your head you think, Okay, the weather was good, maybe shave off a minute. So then when you see evidence of people literally breaking the world record and still finishing second or third, yeah. you know, and, and the men or the women, it is it, it's just mind blowing to realize just how much the weather really affects Oh yeah, you know, endurance athletes.
0: Well, you know, it's funny, so during the race I was I was uh, messaging back and forth with, with an athlete that I coach and she said, Does the wind really make that big of a difference? And I was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean where it really shows up the most was on the bike um, and and the bike course record, by the way, was broken once again by the same guy who broke it last year, but I'll talk about that here in just a minute um, and and Patrick Lang you know took all this time off on the bike. The best I can tell you is that that the wind in Kona, it's, it's a super heavy wind, and then often it kind of swirls a little bit and so that, that that has two big effects. the first one when you when you're riding into the wind. You know, you might be able to say, oh, well, aren't you going to get tailwind on the way back? Not necessarily. First of all, when you're riding into the wind, it's almost like running up a really, really steep hill. And the stronger the wind is, the steeper the hill actually is. And so if you think about, like, running up a steep hill and running down a steep hill, you don't get as much return from running down a steep hill um, in order to make up for running up the steep hill. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, And so so it's it's not a one-to-one gives you back because you get the, the, the wind at your back point 1a is that sometimes the wind will shift and the wind that was in your face on the way out has now shifted and it's in your face on the way back again and so just because it kona is an out and back course but just because you have the wind in your face in one direction doesn't mean you're going to have it in your back in the other direction um the last time i did it in 2014 in fact the wind did shift and a lot of uh, a lot of age groupers end up having the wind in their face in both directions and a lot of folks end up missing the bike cut off as a result um the the other thing about it is that because of the way the wind swirls, a lot of the faster parts of the course, like the downhill coming back from Javi to Kauai High, the wind swirls and so it can be very difficult to actually take advantage of that fast part of the course because if you're riding along at 45 miles per hour and you suddenly get hit with a 50 mile per hour side wind gust, which happens... It'll knock you off your bike and you'll crash at fifty miles an hour 45 miles an hour. that's not what you want to do <laughs> and so so you have to actually even when you're going through the fastest parts of the course you can't just let go and and go as fast as you possibly can because you're still having to control your bike um, and and that's very difficult from a mental and a physical place um, and so so anyway, the point being that the no. Having a calm wind and a calm day uh, profoundly influences the, the the bike times there, as as we saw. Um, so with that point, you know that that kind of segues into talking about Daniela Reef. Uh, Daniela Reef has won every year since uh, 2014, uh, 2014, 2015, 16, and 18. I guess no. So she's won every year since 2015. I want to say, well, this is her fourth. So somewhere there in in there she didn't win. But anyway, um, but but but. Uh, a dominant figure in Ironman over the course of the last few years, uh, she had an interesting race because she was sitting in the water getting ready to start and a jellyfish came along and stung her. Um, and it stung her all the way across her chest such that, and she said it was super painful, of course, and she said that, that she couldn't really feel her arms that well during the swim. Um, and so she ends up doing the swim but ends up coming out of the water nine minutes behind the leader, Lucy Charles. Um, and uh, And even for the first 30 miles or so of the bike, Uh, She really struggled uh, for the first 30 miles or so of the bike, but then kind of came out of it and just started flying. Um, uh, And the back half of the bike for her, the second half of the bike, her bike split was comparable to some of the men's bike splits. And then by the time she actually got off the bike, um, she had done 426 on the bike, which is um, uh, a course record on the bike course by 18 minutes. An 18 minute bike course record in the women's race by Daniela Reef. Uh, she then goes and runs 257, so she ends up having one of her best runs, um, and she ends up uh, uh, finishing an 826 by, to break her own course record by more than 20 minutes. Um, Lucy Charles, who Haley picked to finish second, finished second again. Uh, she was also way under the previous time. Um, she ends up beating the, the former course record time by 10 minutes by doing 836. Um, a woman named Ann Hogg, um, who was. Um, Uh, I think from Belgium, Uh, she ends up uh, third place with an 841, also under the old course record. It was only her second Ironman, as a matter of fact. Um, And then the top American was fourth place, and that was Sarah True. So kudos to Haley Chura for picking a pretty good podium there. She said it was going to be Daniela Reef, Lucy Charles, and and Sarah True, 1-2-3, and her picks went 1-2-4. Sarah True uh, ends up doing 843-42, also under the old course record, so the top four women in the uh, in the the women's race all went under the old course record there. Miranda Carfrey, three-time champion, ends up finishing fifth in eight fifty, um, and it was the fastest she had ever gone there. And so she's won it three times. She went the fastest she's ever gone there, so faster than three times that she won. She did that this past Saturday, uh, and she finishes fifth. <laughs> um, Jeez. Yeah, I mean, just it's it's one of those things that just kind of blows the mind. I mean, just just how how fast a day it was in Kona, um, to, just just how much of a difference that 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 really good weather made. And and again, um, they took advantage, and that's great. They should have. And and I also feel like I should say this too. And I was talking to somebody about this one at at our track practice the other day. It was not a wind aided course, right? Um, every now and then right. you'll, you'll, you'll see that that somebody will run the hundred and they'll run like 9.2 in the hundred meters and they'll say it's wind aided. Okay, that's actually wind aided. You still have to be able to run pretty fast to be able to run a 9.2, but if the wind is pushing you from behind and you're only running a hundred meters and it's pushing you from behind the whole way, that's truly wind aided. The wind is not necessarily helping the people. The lack of wind was not helping the people. Like Patrick Lane still had to go 752. He still had to run a 241 marathon in, at, at the end of an Ironman. Uh, Daniela Reef still had to, to produce a lot of wattage on her bike to do a 426, and she still had to run a 257 at the end of the Ironman there. Um, and so it was, a, it was not a weather-aided course. It's just that this one critical element that normally makes this course so brutally difficult just didn't show up um if you think about all the different factors that that make a race difficult the weather is definitely one of them when it comes to kona and it just it just wasn't as much of a factor as it often is the people there still had to do a full iron man and they still had to do it in in 80 degree weather 80 plus degree weather um but but that critical factor of the wind uh which is usually so determinate and so profoundly effective in in kona just wasn't there um yeah know. Um a couple other kind of things I'll mention here and then then I'll let Patrick uh, uh weigh in one last time here with regards to Tacona here but um so I we said Patrick Lang sets the uh sets the course record for the men crushes the old course record for the men and again these are their own course records so it's not like you can say oh well the technology's gotten so better I mean Patrick Lang set the course record last year it's the same guy and he's using basically the same equipment so you know anyway uh so Patrick Lang sets the men course record Daniela Reef sets the women's course record. Um Daniela Reef also broke the women's bike course record. Um I mentioned um just a second ago Cameron Worf from Australia. He had uh he himself had set the bike course record of 412 in 2017 just last year he took another three minutes off that and did 409 what's more about three or four more other people went under 412 and about 10 other people literally went under the bike course record that had been set in the early 2000s and lasted all the way up until 2017 and so at the beginning of the 2017 race the course record the bike course record that time is now like the twentieth fastest time that's ever been done in Kona. Um, let's see. So Cameron Worf sets a bike course record. Lucy Charles set a new swim course record. Um, a an age grouper a guy named Jan Sieberson who happens to be Patrick Lang's manager, um, he ends up setting a new swim course record for the men uh, with a with a forty six thirty. And yeah, so so add them up. Swim course records in both. Bike course records in both. Course overall course records in both. Um, the only thing that was missing was run course records. Um, yeah. Yeah. On on this, on this day. Uh, it just amazing. Amazing. Um, Yeah. One last thing, uh, a couple last things we'll talk about here. Uh, Alexander Vinokurov uh ended up finishing I want to say 6th in his age group. Um I mentioned him during the preview a former pro cyclist who uh was in charge of double- bike to 418. <laughs> um you know went went almost the same as what the old bike course use, record used to be, bike to 418 and used that to uh to to end up finishing pretty high in his age group. Uh, another former pro cyclist who's a little bit older named Laurent Jalabert, um yeah, from France. He also ended up finishing uh, in the top 10 of his age group as well. Um uh, and the oldest ever finisher um, at uh, in Kona uh, was a guy named Hiromu Anada from Japan, um, and he, at age 85 and 11 months, became the oldest competitor ever to finish the the Kona Ironman. 85, almost 86, and he finishes Kona. Amazing.
1: Are you gonna be doing Kona at age 86?
0: So, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was planning on doing it at age 45 until I changed my plans, but uh, but, but, no. Right, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I, I'm wondering. I'm already thinking about people who are doing it in 2019. I'm like, 2018 was such a charmed year. The weather was so nice. I was like, man, I wouldn't want to be doing it in 2019. Like, they're doing some some bad weather, (laughs) you know? Um, And then lastly, the last thing I do want to say about Conan, this is one that I know that you you appreciate too, um, is is Brent and Kyle Pease. Uh, Brent and Kyle Pease became the the first uh, duo, the first push assist team uh, to, finish, uh, in, uh, to finish in Kona since 1989. Uh, there were some pioneers, a, a father and son team named Dick and Rick Hoyt, um, who I know, Patrick, you're familiar with as well because they ran the Boston Marathon several times too. Uh, they finished Kona for the yep. last time back in 1989, uh, and then so the first time since then, and so how many years is that? Almost 30 years. Um, a a push assist finished when uh, when Brent and Kyle were able to finish uh, Kona together in a little bit over 14 hours here uh, just the other day. So, uh, big congrats to friends of the podcast. Go back and listen to uh, to our interviews with Brent and Kyle from way back in 2016 when we were just getting the podcast going. So, uh, proud of those guys, Atlanta area athletes and Atlanta area Kona Ironman. So, congrats to Brent and Kyle. Final words there, Patrick. Uh,
1: final words in terms of Brent and Kyle, please. You know, the, honestly, there aren't almost any words to capture what they've done. You know, everyone in the endurance community loves them and is a big fan of them. They they do such a great job of bringing people together and introducing a great cause, right? I, I think one thing people outside the running of the endurance community don't quite understand is just how much of a communal sport this is. And whenever you see them at a race, you always see them with other people who are pushing chairs. And it's because, it you know, their cause really helps provide a purpose to a lot of runners beyond just PRing or, or running their first marathon or, or their tenth marathon. So I was very happy to see them come through, and I think you even pointed out this out when we were running together. When you see them crossing that finish line, there you can see on their face just how big of a moment it is for them to complete Kona. Oh yeah. I mean, as if it's not hard enough to complete an Ironman, they completed Kona. Um, people can be amazing creatures sometimes. And this is a, a great example of where humans can really kind of, or people can really surprise you at just what they're capable of when they set their mind to something and really are persistent for years and years. So big time kudos to green cow Cowpeas. I mean, it, I don't know anybody who watched that video and had dry eyes at
0: the end. Right. Yeah, and there's a lot of them, as a matter of fact. There's a lot of different angles of the videos because lots of people took different videos. Uh, And I feel like every different angle tells a different story. Um, You know, In one of them, you can see Brent's wife, for example, and she's jumping up and down and is super excited. And I thought that was cool because you see that not only does she know like what a big deal this is for her brother and for her brother or for her husband and for her brother-in-law. Um, but, but also she had to sacrifice a lot, you know, I mean, family is, um, yeah. it, it's true with all endurance sports and with all kind of long races, but it's particularly true with Ironman. Cause you have to spend so much time on your bike in order to prepare for an Ironman. Um, you know, it was a big sacrifice for her, um, over the course of the past several years to, to both get them qualified and then of course get them across the finish line. Um, and so I, I thought it was neat to watch.
1: Big shout out to all the family members out there, because you know, I, I you know, for every athlete, there's several family members who are cheering and supporting and doing all kinds of things to, to make sure that that athlete crosses the, the, the finish line.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Big, uh, big, big supporting cast everybody had there as they crossed the finish line. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Don't forget you can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast or on Twitter at pleasantpodcast. Don't forget also that this Thursday there's going to be another podcast showing up in your feed from the Most Pleasant Exhaustion. It's going to be a research podcast. And For the next little while, we're going to be splitting them into two pieces, news on Sunday and research on Thursday. Don't forget also to reach out to our sponsors, ITL Coaching and Performance, ITLCoaching.com, at Coaching on Twitter, and Facebook.com slash Coaching and Performance. And also Blue Pineapple Travel, Facebook.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel, BluePineappleTravel.com, or on Instagram, Instagram.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.